This is Joe Basso from Music Radar, the place for music makers, and I'm speaking with blues guitarist Joe Bonamassa. Joe, how you doing? I'm doing great, man. How you doing, Joe? I'm doing great. The first question I have is, do people call you JB? People call me Bonamassa. There you go. That's, that's my name. That's like my nickname around here. People, you know, they just say, you know, where's Bonamassa? I think it's cool. I like it. Actually, it's in my, it's like my Blackberry Messenger um, name, too. It's just Bonamassa. Well, you know, it's weird because um, I had, there was a situation coming, you know, came up with, um, you know, my, my Gibson Les Paul signature guitar where I wanted to do the serial numbers JB001 and up to 300. But there's another man um, who plays guitar for a lot longer and a lot better than I do that is uh, doing a Gibson thing, I think. And um, he uh, has the, shares the same uh, same letters. So so I had to opt with Bonamassa as my uh, my, my serial number, which which I dig. I think it's a way, I think it's way cool. Now who who could this other JB be? Well, now I don't know who that is. Maybe Joe Basso. Who knows? Unless they haven't told me something, I don't think I have a Gibson guitar. But no, but it, it's you know it's it's um, but no, it, it's you know like I said, you know they they have something out in Japan that kind of a looks like you know a blow by blow guitar. So that's oh. all I'm saying. Well, I'm I'm from Jersey. I'm Italian. Well, I'll, I'll get on this for you. That's cool. Yeah, we're good. There you that's go, right. man. That is that is that is, a, that is a New Jersey number. Let me move on to something else here. And that is the Music Live event that you're going to be doing in Birmingham, England soon. I'm, I'm so excited about that. It's our first uh, show back in the UK. How do you feel about bringing the blues to the unofficial birthplace of heavy metal? You know, it's actually, I, I mean, it, it's kind of strange. I mean, like, you know, I am categorized as a blues guy, and I am categorized as, um, you know, a, a blues musician, but I don't, I don't feel that, you know, I'm having to shove a square peg into a round hole, right. you know, because... Because you know my influences are so diverse, anything from classical music to 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 Black Sabbath, you know, I mean, and to to bring it into Birmingham, England, you know, terms. And to me, it's like, you know, I, I feel feel that you know, anytime we can get up on a stage and play, that you know, I I feel like I'm in the entertainment business, not the blues business or the guitar business. And I feel that ultimately, my job is to entertain those folks that show up to Birmingham, you know, the best as I can. And that's that's basically my job. I'm curious. You're very steeped in traditional blues, but there are players such as Jack White and C6 Steve that are bringing blues, stretching the idiom in a way. What do you think of players like that? Well, I, I like anybody who stretches the, the genre. I mean, but like Jack White and C6 Steve and, and, you know, the guys from like the Black Keys and the North Mississippi All-Stars, I, I dig all that because, again, it's like, you know, we don't drive the same cars as we did in 1929. Right. But the concept of the car is the same. You know, it's like the, the, the concept of, you know, the horseless carriage getting you from point A to point B without having to hook horses up to wagons is, is, is basically the same. But, you know, my, you know, my grandfather drives a Saturn, you know, and, and it's a fine automobile. And, and that's, you know, so to me, things evolve. But the concept of the music stays the same. You know, the concept of the blues stays the same. But now you just have, like, guys like C60 even, and who, who's virtually unknown in this country, but very big in England. You know, and Jack White and the Raconteurs and, and the White Stripes. You know, and all those guys, I mean, really doing something new and different and fresh. And that's why the kids are coming, because, you know, the music's dangerous and kind of has an edge again, which is something that the, the genre has desperately needed for years. Let's talk about your own Gibson, your gold top. How involved were you with the process? Um, I flew down in Nashville and uh, basically with when basically designed the guitar from the from the 
ground up. Um, I was very involved with it, and you know, I mean, I was going to do something like of that magnitude and, and you know, staff it out to somebody. I mean, it was like this is this is you know, I don't plan on ha- having a child or breeding, so this is like the closest thing I have to a child, which is you know, that's that's why I, you know, it's very hands on. You have played various guitars through your career. You've played Strats. What made you recently decide on the Les Paul? Well, I've always played Les Paul. I've had Les Paul for probably 20 years. But, you know, I was, again, it's like the pictures that people choose to use in magazines and, and stuff like that. You know, it, it always was that bass boat gold Stratocaster. So people thought I was a Stratocaster guy. But I, in, in theory, only played that guitar two songs a night. You know, the rest was either a Les Paul or a 335 or, or a, you know, some kind of Kelly. So that was the story about the Strat. Um, I've always been a Gibson Les Paul user, even even in the Bloodline days. Um, but it was like, you know, I guess the music I've been writing in the last four or five years has really kind of, like, lended itself to the sound of the Les Paul. I, me as a player in the last four or five years has lended itself to the Les Paul. I mean, I think I'm more of an economical player. I try to get tones now that are more you know, bigger, rounder, you know, more, you know, human voice quality than, than that kind of strident Fender thing, you know, and it's like, you know, I've always strived, I've always strived to get those big, warm, you know, right. thick guitar right. sounds, even, even when I had a Fender in my hand, but I always find I had to, like, go through 85 steps in order to achieve it, where, which the Les Paul does that when you basically just plug it into the, the amp, you know, and it's like, takes a lot of the having to, you know, boost the preamps and, and roll the tone off the the guitar, you know, I'm sitting there, you know, one, you know, one day, like, you know, I was just like looking at the telly, and I'm going, why am I doing all this stuff to this telly to basically achieve what I can achieve with the Les Paul by just plugging in? And I'm just like, going, you know, I'm 31 years old, and the road less traveled looks a lot more appealing than than you know trying to go through eight million devices to to get it to sound the way you're hearing it in your head. You started off very early, child prodigy, I guess we can call you. Well, uh-huh. I. I, I I say a kid who had a little bit of natural ability and a lot of competitiveness and wanted to work at it, you know. But you're involved in a uh, program called Blues in the Schools? Yeah. Tell me what that's all about. Yeah, well, Blues in the Schools, you know, again, it's like 60% is like, I like to educate kids and enlighten them on a music that I am very passionate about, you know. And the 40% is going, I need those kids to come to my concert, you know, because A, you want to spread out your base, and B, you know, we've got to get a new generation of fans you know, they call themselves blues fans, or else the music dies in uh, uh, 10 to 15 years. I mean, it's just, I've seen blues act after blues act after blues act just assume that the people are going to come out and then, then scratch your heads and wonder why there's 40 people. You just can't assume that. You know, it's like you have to, music business is different now than it was 10 years ago. You have to basically build everything from the ground up, brick by brick, fan by fan. And you have to go out there and shake each and every person's hand and say, thank you for coming and look them in the eye and, say, and actually mean it. You know, there's not the obligatory meet and greet, but the actual, like, I physically want to get my ass off this bus and go meet 50 people that are surrounding it right now because there's the A, they've been standing in the rain, and B, I find it I'm extraordinarily honored that they come every night, and, and I'm extraordinarily honored that, that not only do they come, but they bring their friends. And it's like that's the blues in the schools is all part of that, you know, that, that campaign of going, you know, it's retail politics, not to get overly MSNBC on you. It's just, it's, just, it's retail politics one-on-one. You just have to go out there and basically sell the name, sell yourself, and you have to go into schools and do that as well. I mean, it's just that's really a part of it. And plus, when you can look a kid in the eye and go, hey, kids, do you like Led Zeppelin? Yeah, I love, everybody loves Led Zeppelin. Everybody loves Jimi Hendrix. And, um, you know, and you go, well, if you've heard Jimi Hendrix and Led Zeppelin, then you've heard the blues. 
And they're going, no, no, that's not true. And, and, and I'm like, well, here, let me explain why. And it just may, if it inspires them to go out and buy, buy a BB King record, then I've done my job. Can you actually look out and tell when you're connecting with a kid? Yeah, you can. You could, you could, you could tell the ones that stay after. You know, it's usually out of 500, you get 50 to 100 that want to like actually come up and like, like, hey, you know what? You know, I've been playing guitar, but all my friends like hip hop, and I'm always been kind of embarrassed to to even talk about it. Thank you for coming to my school, and at least I have somebody to talk to you about. I mean, it's those kind of kids that you really connect to. And you know, we've had kids that I've done blues in schools for like seven, eight years ago come back and you know, open up for me, they've organized their, their own band, they started the guitar, and, and, like, come back and open up shows for us. And it's like, you just, you, you, you know, for an hour out of my day, and I have a gift to get anyway, so it's like, it's really no no bother, you know? And it's, and it's you know, and, and it's important to know I do them for free. You know, it's all part of getting back, and it's not always about the money, even though some artists think that. But it's like, you do them for free, and, like, you, I just, you know, just, you know, this kid may make a career of it, in music, and that's an hour out of my day changed somebody's life. I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty heavy stuff. What is your opinion of the Guitar Hero and Rock Band games, which obviously are huge with the kids? I think it's great. I mean, it's better than listening to old Aerosmith and old Zeppelin tracks and Shadows Fall and, and Dragon Force than being force-fed the crap that's on MTV right now. I mean, it's just like having super sweet 16 parties and Lil Wayne records that we have to endure before somebody wakes up and says, hey, you know what, at the end of the day, does any of this music have any lasting impact? Does any of this music mean anything? And is any of this music actually creating a positive impact on society? And, I, I you know, albeit I'm, I am a fan of some hip-hop, but the really creative stuff, and I think it's really, really a great genre. But, but albeit the cream doesn't always rise to the top there, and it's just like, I just think the imagery and the whole thing is not to sound like an old man, but I just... You know, where's our Electric Lady Land of this generation? Where's our White Album and, and you know, Eat a Peach Body on Brothers? The answer is there is not, because the bands who actually can play get forced in the underground because there's no exposure and there's no means to get their music out other than going door-to-door and tacking flyers on, you know, telephone poles. You uh, obviously are known as a blues player, but you are a fan of many different types of music, as evidenced from your recordings where you quote bands like Deep Purple and Yes in some of your songs. Uh, obviously, yeah. you're a fan of prog rock. Do you ever yeah. see yourself making a non-blues album? No, I don't, I don't foresee myself ever making a, a record that, that changes what I do. I mean, I think we've stumbled upon a nice formula here, and this is who I am. I, I, I don't like concept records in the sense where, like, well, I'm going to have to force myself to not play my normal you know, or not do what I feel and comes to my, the top of my head. You know, it's like, I don't want to ever do like a, you know, like, you know, Joe does, you know, standards records or Joe does, and not to be like a third person guy, but you know, um, you know, like Joe does the entire score to the HMS Pinnacle. I, I, I'm never going to do that. You know, um, I think also, unlike a, so unlike an Eric Clapton who has done straight pop albums, yeah, you, you, yeah. you don't see yourself doing that. I think it's always going to be a mixture for me. I mean, and I I think Eric Clapton, because he is God and will always be God, can pull that off because he's that freaking talented, you know? I don't think I'm that talented enough to, to basically, you know, go one album's going to be pop and great pop, by the way, and then another album's going to be blues and great blues, by the way. I just don't think I have that in me. I don't think I have that, that, that inane ability to just, you know, jump from one bicycle to the next flawlessly and still maintain a level of quality to the album. 
because I know you're a little pressed for time, we're going to get to some reader questions. Okay, awesome. Uh, now, mind you, I, I Googled myself one time, and, um, and the Music Radar video that I did in, I think it was Cambridge or something like that, it's all over the place. It's like, thanks for getting that out there, and the exposure is pretty cool. No, so, you're big with our readers, man. Like, there was one guy who could comment and say, I sound like Kermit the Frog when I talk. I'm like, well, I'm just as God made me, you know? Well, you do sound like you've had some cups of coffee. Well, I'm a little bit... It's not coffee, it's, it's Diet Coke. Okay, whatever works for you. Whatever um, gets you up. A reader by the name of Eric the Weary asks, if you knew that someone like Jeff Beck or Eric Johnson was in the audience, how would that affect your playing? Um, I always tell my tech, I go, if there's a famous person in the audience, like uh, Billy Gibbons showed up to one of our gigs in Chattanooga, I said, if there's a famous person in the audience, wait till the end of the show to tell me, because there's just no way I can play the same way with those kind of people in the audience. I don't want to know they're there. I'm honored that they're there, but I can't... I can't Waltz on stage going, Eric Johnson's in the crowd. Um, and then you, then you feel like kind of weird because you're stealing his stuff. A reader by the name of John Franco 888 wants to know what your definition of cool is. I think the definition of cool would probably be like Clapton in his Armani suits playing the blues, going, don't have to be, don't have to apologize for being who you are and looking good if you want to play the blues. My definition of cool is probably in. Same thing, muddy waters back in the day. You know, bottle of Johnny Walker Black and a, a tailored suit, you know, at the Newport Jazz Festival, about ready to walk on stage. You know, that, that to me is cool. The nonchalant of it all is the cool part of it. A reader by the name of Gary110 wants to know what amp settings do you use for tracks like Dirt in My Pocket and Slow Gin? Um, I don't really remember. Um, basically, I will preface this conversation with, with this fact. Gary's probably obviously a guitar player, and I could hand Gary my guitar and my amp setup, and he'd probably manage a way with you know working with for 20 minutes to to make it sound like Gary, and vice versa. If Gary handed me his guitar and his amp setup, I'd probably be able to within 20 minutes make it sound like me. So that's why the guitar is such a, a cool instrument because it's so tactile, and it's so based on you know everybody's playing and their feeling and their their hands and their and their and their just you know muscle structure and everything. But as far as you know, amp settings go, I basically run hundred watt amps as loud as they can possibly go all the time, but without having them being collapsed and too gainy. So what you do is you get this massive amount of clean headroom that you um, that you achieve by that and you just kind of vary the amount of gain by using your volume control. A reader by the name of UBT guitarist wants to know what kind of things do you usually go over when you practice and how much do you practice i practice when i'm at home in california and i practice stuff that normally i don't play live you know like like in my house i'll set up like a rack of like acoustic guitars or a rack of dobros or um you know even basses you know just to get me out of the normal headspace of les paul marshall Hmm. you know because i do that every day you know and so it's like, you know, maybe I use a 335 or in a little Fender Princeton and just, you know, try to try to work on my feel and my, you know, vibrato and pitch control and, and, and you know, just, allude, you know, getting tones out of setups and amps and guitars that, that are not normally try to go for. LS Go Card 7 wants to know, and this actually relates back to what you were saying, whenever I try to solo, I feel like I'm playing the, the same pentatonic licks and it just sounds scalish. I was wondering if you had any advice on breaking out of this rut. 
um, stop playing for a week. I think that's the best way to break out of a rut. Just put it down, put it in the case, forget it, forget that you're a guitar player. Go rent a four wheeler, go, you know, rent a bicycle or, or get on a bike and just and just ride and forget your guitar player. Come back to it a week later and again we have a new headspace. But but the worst thing you can do is sit there and beat your head against the wall and, you know, try to and it may not be a week, it could be two weeks or three weeks or whatever, or two days, you know. Oh, just go back to it when you're re inspired. A reader by the name of Tom Shambolix wants to know what you think the advantages are, tonally or comfort-wise, in the way you string your Les Pauls back over well, the tailpiece first, fashion. First of all, I should take, uh, I have to give credit to Jimmy Page and Billy Gibbons for that because that's the thing that I saw. You know, I saw that's the way they were, that's the way they were stringing their guitars back in the '70s. For me, the tonal advantage is probably four or five percent. It's not a huge advantage, but you can. You're able to screw the stud down to the top without without sagging your bridge. That's a that's a good advantage, you know. A and it also decreases the angle in which the strings go over the bridge, thusly making the guitar feel slinkier. So when you use 11 to 52s, you don't feel like you're playing on telephone cables. And I think you do get an advantage with 11 to 52 string nickel wound because I think you do get a, a thicker bottom and a, a rounder uh, non-wound string. You know, so so that 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 actually is is I think a, a real advantage. Um, the other thing that I do find with that setup is that you don't have don't have that really weird feeling when you go to mute the strings mm-hmm. down by the bridge where you have this tremendous angle and it it just feels like your hands falling off the back. You kind of have this nice rounded curve and more of a you know it's just more inviting feel to play. A reader by the name of Keith M wants to know: Have you ever plugged straight into the amp? and thought, this is the sound for me, with no pedals and no additional amplifiers. No. I'm not a pedal guy, either. I don't use the overdrive pedals. There's not one amp that's made by anybody, and that's why I have a lot of friends in the boutique amp business, and when they, and, and generally when they approach you, this is the ultimate end-all be, I go, well, maybe for somebody else, but not for me, because you cannot make an amp that does both the, that does both the high end, the bottom end, and the mids at the same time. It's not going to happen. There's not enough power in the world to, to make that happen. I think there are some great amplifiers, and there's some great amps that, you know, I could plug straight into and get a sound out of. But if it's, you know, the words end-all, be-all, or, you know, this is the sound for me, it's not going to happen. There has to be a mid-range amplifier. There has to be a top and bottom amplifier. Um, there's, just, there's just no way you can get that kind of thing with one amp. And lastly, a reader by the name of... Peter Jan wants to know if you can recommend a good budget amplifier for him. Yeah, well, um, I was just talking about this uh, online the other day. Um, a, a cool amplifier that I found for $200 was a Marshall Classic Lead 30, which is a, a late 70s solid-state single 12 30-watt combo. But the, everybody goes, well, why, would, why would you want to buy that for $200? Well, the, if you really get down to it, the inputs on them are set gain. Now, when you drive the clean channel on the on a on a set gain amplifier, it sounds very Dumble-esque. It has that hyper-articulation, hyper kind of like compressy, yet it's saturated, yet there's a, there's a, there's a focus in the middle. Um, and that amp was $200. Out of the box, some of the, I like AC30s, you know. I don't know if that's a budget amplifier. It's like 1000 bucks. Um, out of the box, I like some of the, the, the little orange tiny tear for a little practice amp that's that's a pretty good amp out of the box and i think that's only four hundred dollars what else can i say as far as budget amps i think anything that that silvertone made back in the 60s with 6b6s and has you know 20 watts or old gibson amps 
you can still pick up for three, four hundred dollars. Those are cool vintage budget amps, underpriced in the market. Um, old Supros and, and and national amps with the three panels that are four hundred, five hundred bucks, underpriced in the market. Yeah, you don't have to spend a million bucks to get good stuff. So lastly, I have a question of my own. Sure. I knew Danny Gatton back in the day when he used to come up and play in New York City. I used to go see him and I was just completely bowled over, and you played with him when you were just a kid, which is astonishing. What are your memories of Danny Gatton? My memories of Danny were, were he was my best friend, my guitar buddy. We talked and talked and talked amps. Um, we talked tellies and just everything in between. You know, he's a guy, he pulled me aside and, and said, Bon Moss, you don't, you don't know anything about jazz. No, You don't know anything about country. You know, you know anything about real rock and roll. I'm not talking about, like, you know, Led Zeppelin. We're talking about like Chuck Berry and, right. and you know Gene Vincent and the Blue Caps and Buddy Holly and you know all those greaser bands from the fifties. You know, uh, you don't know anything about that. You don't know anything about rockabilly. You don't know anything about bluegrass or you know what's the difference between you know West Montgomery and Charlie Christian. I mean, I'm like all of a sudden my world went from mono to stereo in a big hurry. Right. And here was a guy with like we sat outside the Cat Club, not to use a New York City reference, but he'd play the Cat Club or the Bottom Line or, or Tramps or whatever he was playing. You know, we just sit out in Winnebago, and he'd go, here, kid, try this. And, I, you know, he'd play Scotty Moore's 295, and um, I'd play his telly. And he'd just, he wouldn't, you know, he'd just show me a riff, and I'd go home for a couple weeks and then come back and see him. And then, you know, I'd, I'd show him that I learned it. He's like, well, what'd you learn? And, like, most importantly, like, you learned the riff, but, but you learned who the, why the riff was played in the first place. And that was, like, the whole big thing. It's like kind of getting into, he got me into getting into guitar players' heads. And, and really kind of, like, making it, you know, like, you know, it's one thing to play a riff, but, like, why to do it in the first place? You know, it's like if a tree falls in the wood, does it make a sound? Kind of like the theory, you know, in reality kind of thing. So but that's, that is, you know, one of the things for me that, that, um, that, that I learned from him. And just the fact that he was a nice guy, best guitar player in the world, a nice guy, a nice guy in the world. You know, I mean, that's, that's, the, kind of, that's the kind of person he was. Joe, it's been great talking to you. Thank you, sir. I've, I've actually had a blast, and it's you know I'm really honored that there's you know people in music radar you know are, are digging what we're doing. We're just trying to just be honest with ourselves and and uh, you know make the best record and put on the you know best shows we can, and and that's it. I should mention that you do have a new album out, which is called Live from Nowhere in Particular. That is the title. Where, where was it recorded? Because it doesn't say on the credits. Well, that's what the whole ever-loving point of saying live from nowhere in particular is. I know. I'm, I'm looking through the credits. I'm like, okay, where was this track? Where was that track? And it doesn't say. It was recorded. It was recorded basically three nights of various nights, but I can't say for reasons because because I'm not going to pay ten thousand dollars in origin fees to venues that don't deserve it. Because so like that that was the whole reason why it wasn't live from Chicago or live from the Delaware State Fair is because they, they all want like 10 grand to record a whole night's worth of music. Whether you're going to use it or not, they just want it, to, you know, it's it, to me it's just lunacy. Okay. So, and, you know, and I don't want to have to charge $30 for the CD, you know what I'm saying? It's something that you pass, pass the savings down to the fan, which is basically what I'm all about. Exactly. Well, Joe, thank you for talking to me. This is Joe Basso from Music Radar, and I've been speaking to Joe Bonamassa. You're very welcome, man. Thank you for uh, doing this, and uh, I'm like I said, I'm still just very honored and tickled pink by all the good response we, you guys have had uh, for the little uh, demonstration I did, and you know, hope to do more for you at any time. That'd be great, man. Take care. Thank you, dude. Have a good one.